Welcome to Content Disrupted, bold takes on brand marketing. I'm your host, Dan Baptiste, and together we'll explore what it takes to excel in brand marketing at one of the most exciting and disruptive times in industry history. All right, welcome to Content Disrupted, bold takes on brand marketing. Our guest today is Dusty DiMercurio, Senior Director of Industry and Portfolio Marketing at Autodesk. Dusty has built his career shaping both product and brand marketing, spending the last 12 years at Autodesk. He knows how to help transition brands from a reliance on traditional paid advertising toward a more audience and content-centric growth approach. His content programs have earned multiple industry awards, including Best Brand Newsroom, Best Business Blog, Best Customer-Based Publication. And today we'll pick his brain on what each of us can do to build another best, best best-in-class high-impact content marketing efforts at our own organizations and hopefully get to award-winning status. No pressure, Dusty, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So as we think about the conversation, I was excited to talk to you. Like You've been doing this for a very long time at a leadership level. You've had the benefit of testing and learning over multiple years at the same organization, which is fairly rare these days. And I'm sure you've had tons of leaders that you've worked with and had to communicate value to over the years. So no shortage of areas that we can go. But before we do that, it'd be great to start with some grounding. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Autodesk and your role there? Yeah, sure. So Autodesk is one of the few technology companies that's been around 40 plus years. And in a nutshell, the company designs and develops software and technology that enables the world around us to be built. So we help our customers design and make the world around us, whether that's in the architecture, engineering, construction space, making buildings and things like that to the product design and manufacturing space, making products and complex products like cars and things like that, as well as in the media and entertainment space, making movies and uh, video games and the like. So that is uh, a little bit about Autodesk and what we do. And then my role in the company, I'm in the industry and portfolio marketing group. I lead a few different vertical functions in that team, as well as a few horizontal functions. And the horizontal function that I lead is primarily focused on content, thought leadership, and SEO. So that's a primary focus of mine is uh, in all three areas, supporting the larger worldwide marketing organization in those areas. You've been successful. Uh, You're a speaker, you've won a Webby Award, you're Content Marketer of the Year finalist, and your work has been recognized pretty widely. So congratulations, but in short, you know what you're doing. So when you think about content, what are some of the foundational principles that you make sure are in place when you have an effective practice? To your earlier point, I know what I'm doing in certain areas, and certain areas there's, there's just continued growth, continued learning. Today, my team and I think about what we could be doing better, how we could be doing it better. Content's one of those areas where it's so foundational to what marketing does and really what the business does at the end of the day, that it's almost hard to articulate the value of content because it's so presumed. It's sort of the stuff that we use to engage with customers. So it's almost the argument of why is it important to engage with customers and why there need to be substance behind how we do that. So that's one of the unique challenges, I think, for uh, people who work in the content space. I also think some of the challenges and things that we continue to think about are articulating the impact of content. Sometimes it's very directly tied to the business when you're talking about content that is focused on on audience conversion and things like that, driving business through a digital store, for example, it's a lot easier when you're talking about content that's closer to the bottom of the funnel. When you're talking about stuff that's higher up in the life cycle or higher up in the in the funnel, 
That's when it gets a little trickier to articulate what the value is because the value can be perceived in a variety of different ways depending on your business, whether you're B2B, whether you're B2C, what the length of your sales cycles are and all those kinds of things. But I would say, you know, when you're talking about top of funnel, you're moving a little bit further away from direct transaction and more about engagement. How are you actually like drawing in and engaging the audiences that you want to engage with? And then how are you using content as a mechanism to ultimately build a relationship with them and influence them? And so that can be measured in a, in a variety of different ways. So I think even today, as, as much experience as I've had, it's still something we continue to learn about. And you're right that I've worked with a lot of different leaders, and I've tried to tackle this problem from a lot of different angles too. It's complicated, it's complex. And I would say that at the end of the day, probably one of the most important things that I continually try to refine is helping different leaders in the organization understand the importance of content, understand the role that it plays, and understand the complexity of how it helps drive a business's health and success. So I'd love to dig in there. Maybe before we talk about how you've influenced different leaders and the challenges, maybe the unique challenges you faced at personalities that maybe didn't expect given the foundational nature of this. You're talking about Autodesk and your team and a mature function, but I, I assume it wasn't that way when you walked in the door. So what did it look like when you came in and how did you drive that maturity curve over that period of time? You're right. It, it didn't look like that. I came in at Autodesk uh, leading product marketing for uh, one of their more popular parts of their portfolio, AutoCAD. And primarily, I was focused on their move to web and mobile at the time. So it was a very established desktop product, but they were really developing sort of a free app, as it were. By the time I got there, they had an iOS app. They didn't even have an Android app yet. And it was fairly new to market. And a lot of our focus was more kind of a like a PLG, product-led growth approach, where it was a free product. And AutoCAD had a very strong brand. And so there was some good demand already in market for what an app like that might look like within a, a mobile device, for example. But as I dove deeper into that product marketing role, at the same time, Autodesk was moving from a perpetual software license model to a subscription model. And that was a fundamental change in our, our business model across the board. And one of the things that that move did for the company was it helped us reach smaller businesses, smaller companies in a more meaningful way, because all of a sudden, what was traditionally a pain point with very small businesses for Autodesk, which was like our software wasn't the least expensive in the market, these very small businesses, it was hard for them to afford our stuff. But once we moved to a subscription model, they could subscribe to our software when they needed it. And when they didn't need it, they didn't need to subscribe. So my role eventually evolved and I took on very small business marketing. And so for us, Autodesk had primarily focused on big accounts, major and large and medium-sized businesses, but the long tail of the business didn't really have a whole lot of focus. And we saw this new opportunity. And so I got put in charge of leading our very small business go-to-market. And one of the first things that we did was really research these VSBs, these very small businesses, to understand what was important to them, what their relationship was like with Autodesk, what they needed from us, what they were looking for in, as a partner with us, and also how do we best reach them. And we realized that unlike our major accounts where we have their phone number, we know who they are, we know how to engage them with the VSBs, given the long tail nature of that business, we didn't necessarily know in an outbound way how to reach them. And so the idea was, let's take our insight and the research we did around these audiences and build an inbound focused content program that would pull these people to us. 
And so that was really how content marketing got started at Autodesk. And that was really, it was primarily a strategy of mine when I was leading very small business. And from there, it kind of took off. That's really interesting. So obviously, if you have an enterprise sale, high touch, et cetera, not only for the small business side, do you use it to attract folks in? But I assume the content has to do a lot of the heavy lifting from a sales standpoint as well. Is that correct? Yeah, it does. Our products are, they're longer sales cycles. They're more complex sales. And so, yeah, we have a variety of different content that addresses the complex buying committees that we'll often engage with when we're selling our technology. If you're talking about a large account play, if you're talking to more of a digital transaction, somebody who's going to buy a, a seat of, you know, Revit or AutoCAD or something like that. It's less of a complicated purchase path, but still we develop content that helps engage customers across a variety of different businesses. So as you moved from the very small business path to content as a driver, a value prop, foundational, how you engage with folks, was leadership bought in from the beginning? And if not, like, how did you educate them and, and bring them on? Good question. And the answer is yes and no in terms of their buy-in. I'll start with the yes part of that answer, which is that I think at Autodesk, one of the things that's been helpful for me in terms of advocating for the importance of content and storytelling at large is that a lot of the technology that we develop is a mechanism through which our customers tell stories to their customers and sell products to their customers. So let me give you an example. We may have a customer who is interested in selling a building design to a big company. And this has happened on multiple occasions. They will design the experience in 3D and they'll be able to actually show up to the client and the bid and give them a, a pair of VR goggles and walk them through a 3D design of the building that they're bidding for. This is one of the things that we do to enable our customers to sell their products to their customers. And so there's inherent understanding of the importance of storytelling at a foundational level within our company. That's great. And our, our CEO, Andrew Anagnost, super amazing guy. He's, he's literally a rocket scientist. Before he was our CEO, he was actually our head of business strategy and marketing. So he was head of marketing and business strategy. And so he's an incredible storyteller himself, as well as an actual product guy too. But I was in his organization. And so I did have some good air cover and some fundamental understanding of the importance of, of storytelling. On the flip side, when you're talking about, you're trying to get the business to invest in areas like this. A lot of times, especially with executives, right? You've got to be able to tell a story of how's this going to impact the business. And as I mentioned earlier, there's some direct ways where you can say, hey, so for example, if we do this inbound content play, we can drive in more organic traffic, which is among the highest engaging and often the most highest in terms of converting through our e-store as an example. So there's kind of a direct one-to-one -one relationship around content marketing to drive that part of the business. When you're talking about investing in more like thought leadership and higher funnel content, the conversation becomes trickier. I would say that one of the ways that we've seen success in driving the clearer understanding of the impact that content can have when you're talking about upper funnel is more in the context of engaging with larger businesses. So like when you talk about um, engaging in a big company, right? We usually like our top-down play is more of an ABM approach. And so as you think about ABM, one of the foundational aspects of account-based marketing is that, you know, you're trying to influence multiple people that may sit on the buying committee and all have different things that they care about, whether it's an end user who's actually using the software, all the way up to like a super senior executive who doesn't really know much of any about the software, but understands the business and the business trajectory and the larger economic threats facing the business, things like that. So 
one of the things that we've been able to do is show how some of our really strategic thought leadership content helps open the door to having conversations with people more senior in our accounts. And so when you can do that, the conversion doesn't happen in a quarter or two. It can be over, in some cases, years. But being able to show how content can engage a higher level of an organization within an account shows an immediate impact to our executives, as an example. As you're sharing out numbers, are they anecdotal? Like, hey, this account we wouldn't have been in without content, or are they more macro numbers oriented? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's complicated. You know, every company has their own sort of like attribution modeling and how they articulate the value of what marketing overall supports in, in terms of driving the business. I would say that we sometimes it's anecdotal and sometimes, you know, sometimes qualitative and sometimes it's quantitative. For that upper funnel stuff, sometimes it gets quantitative when we're saying like, hey, let me show you an example of how this piece of thought leadership content really opened the door to having a conversation at a higher level and allowed us to like triple our you know enterprise business agreement with this company. So we do sometimes have very tangible ways that we can tell that story, but oftentimes it involves bringing in somebody from customer success or sales who says, hey, this piece of content is what opened the door and really drew in the interest of that account. Without this, like there's no way we would have like gotten their attention in the first place. So it's really important to build relationships around the business and build advocates for content who are the teams that actually need it the most. To that point, do you work with those areas of the business from an ideation standpoint, as well as, hey, here, uh, make sure you're using and sharing that feedback loop? Like what role do they play in the life cycle of content? We do. Our tentacles are all about the business. We're all kind of all over the place. And we've been at it for a while. So a lot of folks know our people. I've got people on my team, for example, literally their role is content business partner. And similar to how you would talk about like a finance business partner or an HR business partner, right? These people are kind of embedded within different parts of the organization and represent that practice within the business. For me, I have business partners that are aligned by geo in some cases, and I have business partners who are also aligned by industry. And these people's responsibility is to really work closely with these parts of the business to both help them develop content and develop content strategies that help them be successful, as well as actually bring inputs from that part of the business back to the content center of excellence so that we can better understand the needs of the business and develop the right content that supports what they need. I want to hop back to the account-based marketing uh, model that you all have. You mentioned buyer committees as kind of one pivot point. So thinking through how do you support the unique needs of a complex organization where different people value different parts of what you bring to the table. Is that your primary lens when you think about account-based marketing? Is it industry? Is it size of account? Is it one-to-one? Is it like accounts? Like, How do you think about, one, account-based marketing overall? And two, do you develop content for account-based marketing specifically, or do you leverage thought leadership and repurpose it into account-based marketing deployments? We do a little bit of all of that. So I would say, you know, we look at our ABM practices is we think about things in terms of one-to-one and one-to-few and then one-to-many. A lot of our one-to-many plays will develop like larger sort of, I would say, programmatic approaches to content development that sort of feed the one-to-many plays, right? More of that kind of outbound as well as, as inbound engine. And a lot of that content gets ideated by understanding what are the strategy for the business? Who are the audiences we need to engage? Things like that will inform a lot of that more programmatic, like one-to-many plays. When you get up to one-to-one and one-to-few, that's where it becomes complicated and you need to think about how can we most efficiently develop content 
that is scalable and that can be like easily adapted at a one-to-one account basis. So sometimes the team will think about content modularly. They'll develop certain aspects of content that will get repurposed and reused, but you'll hot swap, you know, account names and things like that. And then maybe certain aspects of the content that are more bespoke to an account, but allow us to have a little bit more agility to say, develop something that's more specific to an account or a cluster of accounts that have certain things in common, and then bring some of those other modular pieces that need less personalization as it were at the account level. So we take a variety of different approaches to that. The other complicated thing, as you mentioned, is that you're trying to surround the account. One of the powerful things about ABM is that you're getting sales and customer success and marketing to all work together right? Because they all touch the customer in different ways. And, you know, without an ABM approach, oftentimes it's very kind of haphazard from the customer's perspective. They like got some customer success manager telling them one thing and some sales guy telling them another, and then some marketer who's like, you know, sending them uninvited emails. So the ABM approach is very powerful. And, you know, it's something we're still continuing to refine. We've had some really great wins and successes, but it's still something that's an ongoing challenge for us. Like, how do we plan and prioritize our accounts in a meaningful way, that becomes one challenge. And then once you've got a sense of how you're going to prioritize and cluster accounts in the most meaningful way, then it becomes, okay, how do we develop? What's the story we need to tell there? And that is where some of the messaging and things like that, that's where you need you know, sales and customer success involved and things like that to figure out what's the value prop. And then of course it's, okay, once we know what we need to say, then we need to actually develop a content program. And that may involve going out and looking at all bunch of stuff that we've already got and recycling some of that stuff and then filling some gaps and creating some new content that fills some gaps for that particular program. Was it challenging to get those three squads, marketing sales and customer success, like coordinated? (laughs) And like, do you have any advice or tricks to do that well? It's complicated. It's tricky. And, you know, in some areas of business, we have more success than in others. Um, Sometimes it just comes down to like relationships, who knows who. And sometimes, you know, Autodesk is one of those companies where we've been around a while and there's a lot of people who've been at the company for a while, myself included. And one of the advantages of having been there for a while is I know a lot of different folks and I know how to pull people in and got those relationships in place. That can be, you know, a determining factor in how successful um, an approach can be. You can't always rely on that. And so there are processes in place for us to try to scale that. But the reality is that we're strong in some areas of business and other areas we're still fledgling and still figuring it out. So in terms of advice that I would have, I think content's actually a really powerful way to bring these people to the table because they all need content. They may need it for different reasons and they may think that they're using it in unique ways. And it's up to content team, for example, to say, hey, here's what I'm hearing your core use cases are. Here's some content we already have. And here's some areas where we think we could develop some stuff that would help you guys show up in a more coordinated way and actually surround the account and work together to move the account forward or grow the account rather than trying to kind of tackle it piecemeal. So I would say that showing up with content Showing up with the value of it is a great way to get those people to the table. And then the other thing I would say is that where you have had success working with sales, working with CS and other marketers, of course, you know, having your own internal case studies around content wins, like how content has played a role in coordinating how we approach an account and how we engage an account. If you got some of those wins in your back pocket, it's easier for you to articulate the value of that approach. And then it gets easier to bring people to the table and, and start to collaborate together. 
Makes sense. Speaking of using and reusing content, have you noticed a meaningful difference when you look at account-based marketing from a one-to-one lens versus a one-to-few? Is it worth the one-to-one push? Uh, Are you seeing that lift from a business standpoint? It depends. You know, it's interesting because like when you think about one-to-one, a lot of times that's like enterprise, like those are named accounts, right? Where you actually have reps assigned to those accounts. They have maybe a few, or maybe they have one if it's a big enough account. Those kinds of accounts, in some cases, actually need a little bit less in terms of like programmatic content development. The reason why, they've got an account person who's there to hold their hand and work with them and be that source and be that partner. We made a concerted effort to say, hey, we're actually not going to prioritize the one-to-one because they already get enough love from the business. They get a lot of coaching. So what we do is we look at the one-to-few opportunities and we go, okay, you know, working with sales to figure out like, how are we coordinating our approaches and how are we taking a handful of accounts that have a certain common denominator set of things that, that are important to them or that they care about. And some of these things could be regional based, right? Like they're just all in one country. Others could be aligned by industry or sector or subsector, things like that. So in those cases with ABM, we prioritize the one to few. And when we design our content programs, as I was mentioned earlier, we'll try to design content that is scalable in the sense that we'll develop certain parts that are easier to hot swap and modular, and then some parts that are more personalized so that we have the ability to personalize at more of an account or account cluster. So we can cover more of our our accounts with, with this content. And the idea when we design the content is that, hey, you know what? If the one-to-one guys, if the, if the enterprise guys need content, they know where to get it. They know how to get it. And they know, and they can actually use this stuff already. And they'll, or they'll use it as building blocks for some of their more high-touch engagement. And then also what we'll do is as we develop some of these one-to-few plays, we'll also do it in a way that helps us think about how that content can not just be used upstream in the one-to-one, but also how it can be scaled on the one-to-many side. So we've been talking a lot about tactics, uh, but your recognition, at least from what I can tell, was largely around creative. And I think there's this idea with B2B, especially if you're in what's perceived as a boring or a commoditized industry, like you don't have a lot to say, right? My kind of hot take on that is it's a little bit of a cop-out, right? Like if you're looking inward and you're like, how do I talk about myself more and better? You know, you're going to run out of real estate pretty quickly. But if you look externally, like what's going on with my customers? How are they driving innovation? How do I celebrate them all in areas that we play? The kind of white space and green space is immense and you can start creating value and partnership externally and do really inspirational and interesting work. One, do you agree with that? And how do you think about creative storytelling? I've heard you mention that a few times within the B2B space. Yeah. I mean, you just kind of gave a pitch for why content marketing matters basically, right? And what it is, right? That it's not coming in and looking at what are we trying to do and what's the story we're trying to push out to the world. It's like the reverse of that. It's like, okay, let's start with our customers and what matters to them and let's reverse engineer how we can bring value to them. You know, a lot of times when you look at the way that people do research around buying things today, whether it's a commodity or a a complicated sell, um, they start with basic generic search and things like this. So, you know, I think from that perspective, you have to realize that like, by the time somebody lands on your website, they're already pretty far along in the bypath. And so you got to be able to reach people before then. And a lot of times that's where things like SEO come in, right? It's like, okay, first of all, let's prioritize who, like, who are the most important audiences that we need to reach and influence. 
And then let's do some homework and figure out like what matters to them and what does value look like to them and then figure out how we can deliver that value. And generally the vehicle for that value tends to be content. And it seems obvious when we talk about it this way, but it's missed on a lot of marketers. Um, I've seen this throughout my career. I've been guilty of it myself. When you're leading a product marketing function, for example, you wake up every day thinking, how do I drive more demand for my product, right? You're just, you get this very sort of insular view of the world because you're thinking a lot about what you're trying to do to grow your business. So it's natural to think that way. But at the end of the day, like this is the opportunity with, with an approach like content marketing is you're like, okay, I got to get out of that mindset. I got to stop thinking about me, start thinking about the people that I want to engage with and thinking about what matters to them. And then how can I show up with value to them and start that relationship with one of value? You know, when you think about if you're able to go and create value for customers before they are even looking for you, by the time they do get to looking for you, they're going to remember that value that you already add and go, oh, wow. So you're also a provider of technology in this space too. And I think, you know, B2B, B2C, I think it's, you know, I think the difference tends to be in a lot of cases, like how complicated is the purchase? I just heard my, my CMO the other day, she said, oh, it's all B2H. We're all business to human in some capacity. We're all talking to somebody and she's not wrong. The question then becomes, okay, how much or what role does content play? And so a lot of times like B2C content tends to be kind of more lifestyle and more fun and more like about them having a good time and those kinds of things, because it's not like complicated purchase, right? It's like, do I want to buy a Coke or a Pepsi? You know, like it's like, okay, that's not a high consideration purchase. But in B2B, when it is a higher consideration purchase, some of the value and the role that content can play is, well, let me help this person figure out, first of all, what problem it is they're even trying to solve. Aside from your company and your technology, you know, eventually you're probably going to try to steer them in your direction and convince them, hey, our stuff's the best and here's why. But before you even get to that, you've got to show up with value. And so one of the ways to do that is, is to be able to say, hey, let me help you think about the problem that you're trying to solve and frame it in a way that helps you make the right decision or go in the right direction in terms of that high consideration purchase. And this is the role that I think thought leadership plays a really valuable role in that part of it, because you know, with thought leadership, and this is certainly something that's been critical at Autodesk is, and everybody's dealing with digital disruption in some capacity. That's just the times we live in right now. And in the spaces that we're in design, you know, we're helping the world design and make whatever they want to make, whether it's a film or a car or a building or, or whatnot. But the way that that happens today is changing rapidly due to technology and tools and generative AI and other, you know, disruptive elements that come into the mix. And so one of the things that, that we can do with thought leadership is actually help paint a picture of what does the future look like? And guess what? The future looks different. And so the ways that you're going to need to design and make today are very different than the ways that are, you're going to need to do it tomorrow. And so that becomes an important mechanism. Like telling that thought leadership story helps establish your business as credible because you not only see where the future is, but you're actually developing the technology to bridge where we are today with where we need to be tomorrow. I love that you're speaking our language and in a lot of ways we're we're banging the drum on that quite a bit. So the other thing that's really interesting, not only can you project a future that you can help enable, right? Like that's a important bridge where so you you move beyond a transactional moment and you're actually helping folks really drive meaningful change over time. So you're 
also positioning yourself as a continuous partner, not a partner in the moment. The other thing you said that I thought was really interesting was around the problem, like stating the problem and framing the problem. I think in a lot of ways, a well-articulated problem allows people to feel understood in a way that rushing to a solution could never do, right? Like you're trying to sell me something. You haven't taken the time. Do you even know what I'm trying to solve? Sometimes you're right. I don't even know what I'm trying to solve, right? So spending time articulating and thinking and clarifying around the problem and the future opportunity is often way more important than prescribing a solution. And uh, I don't know if you're on board with that, but yeah, I thought that was really insightful. I do totally agree. I think that's one of the most important things up front and one of the most important aspects of building that relationship with the customer even before they come looking for you is helping them figure out what the problem statement really is. And sometimes, and especially, you know, when you're like a technology provider and you're like, look, we've done a lot of homework, like we know where the market's going and we're building this new technology. We've been thinking about this from a customer's perspective. They haven't gone that deep into it and they're not they're not that far ahead as you are. So they don't see the future. And so it ends up becoming one of those things like the probably overused uh, metaphor of like that Ford was, was not trying to create a faster horse, right? Like this is the thing, right? Like technology providers see leapfrog moments. And so part of it is like, if you help the customer understand and frame the problem correctly, you're in a better position to help them see that it's not actually a faster horse that you're looking for. It's something altogether different than the way that they operate or the way they think about the problem today. This has been kind of interesting revelation for me. So historically, when I thought about thought leadership down to product connection, I've tried to focus the larger band into the smaller band. So start like really framing the problem and building it out. Lately, uh, with the pressure, the immediate gratification and the pressure for quick wins, I've started to flip that around and start to look at how do we tell really impactful stories surrounding the product and then start moving out to create the market. But you have those stories connected, almost reversing uh, the order. Are you seeing that that pressure that most folks are feeling today? Uh, and what does that do to the thought leadership practice that you have? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you're right. I mean, it comes down to like, how do you balance the long-term thinking with the short-term wins that you need to be able to show? And the reality is that both things need to happen in parallel, you know, depending on who your stakeholders are and how, you know, what, what does success look like for them? Like that's some of the first like homework you need to figure out is like, what is, what does success look like to this person? And, um, and figure out, is this congruent with the longer-term vision, first of all? And if it is, then you figure out how do we get quick wins while building support for the longer-term vision. You can have a long-term vision and say, hey, here's our three-year or five-year plan, but if we don't make next quarter, like none of it's going to matter. So yeah, there's there's a lot of balancing there. I also think we talk a lot about, I mean, this is a pretty popular thing, I think, in the tech space too, around the idea of like category, like what is category? And you hear that term thrown about a lot especially in the startup space, but really just in the technology and innovation space. It's interesting because category becomes this thing where it's like, sometimes you've got a product and that product is so new and so different and so disruptive to the way that things get done that it actually deserves its own way of being talked about. It doesn't fit in the old paradigm. And so I'm trying to think of a good example of this. So, you know, at Autodesk, we talk a lot about design and make coming together. Historically, designing things was a very different discipline 
than actually like making it. And and oftentimes there was some incongruence between the two, right? You'd have a designer who designed something beautiful and then the engineer would be like, yeah, you can't make this. This is beautiful, but it's un, you know, it's unrealistic. And so nowadays we we develop technology that brings those worlds together, right? So that your design phase and the and the tools you're using to design have built-in constraints like engineering constraints built into them so that you can't just design fake things. You can, you know, you're designing with, you know, a safety net of, hey, this is actually buildable. This is makeable. And so to us, we talk about this idea of design and make as like a new category because it very much is a distinct new thing. It's a new way of thinking about it because now all of a sudden decisions around make are happening way earlier in the design process and they're influencing the design process. This never really existed before because these disciplines were very linear and then spread apart over periods of time. Now you have new ways to make that happen. And I think this is common in a lot of companies that are innovating and bringing new technology to market that are solving problems in very new ways. A car became a car, not a driverless carriage. I mean, I think they called it that maybe in the beginning, but like became its own new, completely new category because it was a different approach to solving the original problem. I saw a pretty comprehensive report that you had created with primary research built in. What role do you see research playing in both thought leadership and category creation as you described it? That was driven out of my team. So thought leadership happens across the company in different capacities. But at one point, um, I was I took on sort of leading thought leadership for the business. And so when that happens, you know, it's like, okay, I'm in charge of content and thought leadership. Both of those terms are super loaded and understood very differently. And so I'm like, all right, guys, we're, we're going to start with the hard job, which let, let's define what we mean by thought leadership and let's define what we mean by content for that matter. And when we really dug into like thought leadership, we kind of came up with this definition of, hey, it's basically insight from a trusted source. And so we thought, okay, well, you know, who do we go to for insight? Like what are trusted sources that we go to? And we kind of realized that like a lot of times we'll go to consultancies and what do all these companies have in common? They all publish original research on the problems. And so we thought, you know what? We do a ton of research. Um, what if we were, Autodesk were to become a publisher of original research? And I'm like, I looked around and I'm like, well, we've been doing that, but we've been doing it ad hoc and in piecemeal around the organization and in silos. And so this that state of design and make report was really my attempt to bring a lot of that stuff together and do it in a way that both helps build the parent brand by creating sort of research as a platform internally uh, for us becoming known as a company that is publishing cutting edge research in this space. So it became one of the most important artifacts of our thought leadership program and continues to be to this day that we are going out and we are studying the biggest challenges that businesses are facing in the design and make space and publishing research around it. And that research is pretty high order in terms of like, we're thinking a lot about executives and more senior decision makers. Like that's sort of the target audience that we're going for with, with that kind of research. The reality is it's very relevant even to end users and people who are using technology day to day because they want to understand the bigger, longer term challenges that businesses are facing. And they also want to read the same stuff their executives are reading, right, to influence them. And so we developed this report and it became a fundamental way that we both bring our point of view, our thought leadership to market, as well as a tangible way to back up the vision that we have for where the markets are going, right? Is to say, hey, we've done this research and here's what the research is telling us. And so now you saw that report, we're going to be publishing that every year. 
And in fact, we even do special reports throughout the year. So we're just about to launch a new special report that's like a subtopic in the design and make space. But, you know, I would say that like that research is crucial and adds a lot more validity to our thought leadership in terms of having like real hard data to back up the vision that we articulate around where we believe the markets are going. That's really cool. Yeah, I think we see that popping up in in certain companies that are market leaders or category creators. There's a, a firm ADP, they do the jobs report or the workforce fatality report. They have 800,000 businesses they see and they'll release it ahead of the federal jobs report and get a whole bunch of press. So leaning into original proprietary data has a whole host of benefits, uh, which content franchises off of that, you know, implied leadership, uh, category creation, all, all of those things. As we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, there's this push largely from executives universally of cost cutting, right? And you see tools out there, ChatGPT, others that can, you know, look really appealing or attractive and can help cut corners. But the danger is if you offload the critical thinking and some of the research and this core asset creation externally to tools like that, there's absolutely some danger there. So, you know, when you're thinking of the value of really high thought content and how it plays a role, like how would you speak to executives that are listening to this and, you know, how should they be thinking about the content function and where should they definitely not cut corners as they're thinking about the future of the business? I think about these tools, these generative AI tools, as I think about them as they're kind of like they're efficiency builders. You know, I don't think that they're going to replace content like original content creation. I mean, if you think about how those large language models are fed, they're fed by stuff that already exists. So by virtue of that, they're not really generating anything new. They're just kind of synthesizing stuff that already exists. And the danger of how powerful these tools are um, is that, you know, we are at the precipice of a giant explosion of kind of derivative mediocre content that's you know developed by bots. And so I think there's a real risk. I think for marketers, it's going to make it harder for and, and content people to stand out. And so to me, like I was just asked this by Content Marketing Institute, they're like, what's your prediction for 2024? And I'm like, I think we're going to see a rapid explosion of content. I think it's largely going to be potentially mediocre, maybe in many cases, derivative content, because it's just based on how the LLMs learn. And so how do you stand out in that? With original thought, with original thinking. So to me, leaning into thought leadership becomes even more critical given that the state of that. I would also say, and my, my team, we're, we're testing out, we're piloting you know, generative AI tools on a lot of different fronts, on the SEO front, on like optimizing headlines, on generating that new content. We're testing it out in a bunch of different ways. And some of the early learnings, like there's there's some really valuable things that it shortens, it shortens periods. It can shorten certain work that was very tedious before. And so for that kind of stuff, I'm like, I'm all about it, man. Like let's elevate the humans to focus on the creative problems and let's use the machines to do the manual iterative stuff that's frankly not deserving of a human, of the brilliant human mind. I think these tools used in the right ways can be massive time savers. They can be helpful in research gathering if you're building rich content that's based on research. They can be super useful for that. And so we're testing it out. We're trying it out. We've got learnings where stuff's balancing out. So for example, we can speed certain aspects of research up and help us pump out content more quickly. But when you're trying to have the tools generate content, 
you may be able to get to volume faster, but then you just need to move the content creators into a different function of, okay, we can pump more content out, but now we need to validate the truthfulness of that content because the machines hallucinate and have questionable at best sources, if any sources at all. So you got to validate whether the stuff's accurate and then you got to go through and edit it and give it a voice. And so, you know, right now in terms of content creation, we're not seeing a ton in terms of actual generating content, but we, where we are seeing efficiencies gained is through the, some of the research gathering and stuff like that. We can, that can speed that stuff up more quickly. So I think again, don't think of it as like replacing your content people. Your content people are still going to be really critical, especially for your brand voice and your original ideas. But, you know, at the same time, encourage your teams to challenge themselves to disrupt the way that they work. Try these things out and, and, and they're going to learn from themselves what the best ways are to use these tools. And I think the tools will evolve over time as will people's ability to like ask it the right questions and do the right prompt engineering. Yeah, that's really insightful. We have also tested and learned. And, and as we think at lots of different stages, to your point, like, can we figure out where's the energy on this topic? What do we need to create? And then once we create some of these longer form assets, like what more can we do with them that were more manual sub copywriting based on a core asset? There's elements to speed up, but replacing POV development or you know, how do I interpret this research into something that new? It's incapable. So um Echo your sentiments there. So last question here, uh, as we close, folks are looking to take their organization and content to the next level. Any final thoughts or advice as we wrap on folks that are aspiring to be better than they are today? I would say, and I, you know, I think about this a lot myself and with our team is the role of content continues to grow in terms of its importance for the business. Back when content marketing started to become even a thing, it was really like, the real disruption that it brought was a couple of things. One, that we start with the audience and what they care about and showing up by creating content that adds value to them instead of being all about yourself. But then the other, the other part of it was, how do we use content as a mechanism for bringing in and engaging audiences in a way that's going to like drive and support where the business is going? And so you think about like the idea of cookies eventually going away and some of the like luxuries that marketers have had over the last 10 plus years digital marketing, like with things like GDPR coming in and more rules and more stringent or, or more narrow use cases for people being able to do this, content becomes this really important way, not just to engage customers in a meaningful way, but also as a way to actually build your own first party data. When somebody comes in and they come in through like each piece of content that we have on our design to make with Autodesk hub, for example, each piece of content is treated like a front door not like we just send them to the hub and then go find what you want, right? It's like they come in through it, they should be presented with other content that looks like that. We should presume based on, because we've designed the content for a particular audience around a particular topic, we can presume whoever's hanging out there and reading that content, that's already some data that we already know about them. If we can turn them into a newsletter subscriber, great. Now we can append that data. Content becomes this like data building capability that when combined with like smart progressive profiling really becomes the way to power a lot of your marketing moving forward, especially in a world where cookies eventually disappear. So the role of content, I think, is only becoming more and more important. And I would say that's a really important part of the story outside of the more flashy aspects of content being pretty and creative. Um, it's a really important part of driving the business, especially given where the markets are going. Love that. So speed round here, a few questions. First thing that comes to mind as a marketer, what keeps you up at night? 
proving value to the business. What keeps you going? Getting to tell cool stories and work with really interesting, smart people. What's a marketing term that you love? Attribution. What marketing term do you hate? Synergy. I use it and I apologize every time I use it. I actually use it at a presentation I gave at Content Marketing World a couple of weeks ago. And I used the word synergy and apologized before I used it. But I was like, this is the only word I know the most succinct way to describe because I had a slide and I only had room for like two words. And I was like, create synergy. And I'm like, sorry, guys, but yeah, it's just overused. There's nothing wrong with the term itself. Best business book. Shoe Dog. I was just talking about this the other day. I love, love that book. And organic or paid? Organic, definitely. Much higher engagement with organic. And paid is very disruptive, man. Organic presumes like you're answering a question for somebody. You're providing value like just by nature of what it is. So yeah, paid is like, hey, I'm here. I'm going to make some noise and whether you like it or not, and most of the time it's a not. Fantastic. Well, Dusty, this has been incredible. Really appreciate your insights. Clearly, you've learned a lot in this career. We really appreciate you sharing that with us. So thank you so much. Awesome, Dan. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation myself. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Content Disrupted, brought to you by Skyward. To stay up to date on the latest ideas and insights in brand building and content marketing, visit our website at skyward.com. That's S-K-Y-W-O-R-D.com. Join us for our next episode, where we'll continue to challenge marketing norms and inspire you with fresh strategies for growing business through brand storytelling. 